Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. And I'm Lewis Williams. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights, and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Lineker College, Oxford. Today, we're going to be joined by Ellie Benjamin Israel, a PhD student at Temple University. We'll be talking about his experiences moving to the US as an international student with a family, his research on Kant and the sublime, and his work putting together interdisciplinary public philosophy events. If, after listening, you'd like to find out more about Ellie's work, you can find his website at www.ellie-benjamin.com, or you can email him at elliebenjamin at temple.edu. Ellie Benjamin Israel, welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. Thank you so much for having me. So I'd love to hear about your experiences uh, studying at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, where you completed your BA and MA. What's the philosophical culture like there? Great question. So I was very surprised about the philosophical culture at, at the Hebrew U. All the philosophy I read before coming there was like Plato and stuff. And then all my first year during my undergrad, I just read a lot of philosophical journals and the things that were written in the last three years. That gives you a sense of the philosophical culture there, but uh, it still nurtured uh, my own <clears throat> philosophical interests that were not very much, let's say, traditional to the years of, to the years of uh, analytical philosophers uh, in a very interesting way. So I'm very grateful to the department. Absolutely. And then when you came to move to the US last summer to begin your PhD studies at Temple University, were there any differences that you noticed there in the philosophical climate at Temple University? Mm -hmm. Many differences, actually. I'm kind of in a sensitive position right now where I'm still kind of in love with my ex, which is the Hebrew University, but I'm very excited about what's going on right now at Temple. <laughs> Temple is a very different department than the Hebrew U. It's a very diverse department. It has a very strong uh, tradition in aesthetics and in uh, continental philosophy. But right now, it has a lot of young, uh, young people, not just graduate students, but also uh, young faculty members who come from uh, more, let's say, analytical places, but are very historically inclined. So it's a very exciting place to be in. Mm. So as an international student, did you find any difficulties navigating the application process coming from Israel all the way to the U.S.? I think we have right now a lot of support, not just from the part of faculty members we work with, but there's also like this very big network in Facebook of graduate uh, students who support each other, give each other information. I found this Facebook group, all the answers I needed actually. The process was very expensive, I can tell you this, <laughs> but uh, it was quite simple to navigate through. Uh, and I'm quite satisfied about how not just navigate through the question of where to apply, but also uh, what questions to ask when I'm, uh, when I'm being interviewed by departments, uh, what are the things that I need to focus on when I'm speaking with a graduate student in the program I'm interested in, and so on. So did you have to go through many interviews then? From my understanding, I, I didn't think that interviews were too common in the uh, graduate application process. I was not inter interviewed like before being accepted, but there, was, like, there, there were many conversations with professors after being accepted uh, in order to see if there's like 
there's a match and what kind of things the department mm. can provide me with. That's why I called interview. Maybe that's not, that's not the best label, but yeah. <laughs> so I guess one of the questions that you will have had in those interviews is wanting to find out more about how you can approach this transition to graduate school, both as a husband and as a father. And I'm also interested to know whether those familial considerations had any effect on the way that you approached your graduate applications more generally. Sure, sure. So that's a very good question. My wife is not an academic. She's a teacher, actually. She's a special education teacher in Israel. And my children are very small. Like I have uh, two, almost three years old and a baby that was born like a month before the program started at Temple. So I did want very much for a program that was also very, you know, exciting philosophically, but at the same time could allow me time to be with my family, could allow um, a location that is more that is more accommodating for them in terms, like for my wife to find a job, let's say, or for my kids to have a good school. The academic considerations become kind of a small, <laughs> a very small part of what I'm, I was primarily concerned about. <laughs> and I suppose, uh, lastly, in that vein, what was the move like to the U.S.? I, I mean, I imagine sort of if you have a family sort of gathering together, working visas and all the kinds of paperwork that you'd have to get together, that should be probably like quite difficult and something maybe that prospective international students should know about. Is there anything you think they should know in that vein? It was quite terrible, <laughs> to be really frank with you. But uh, like we had a, a, like the, an awful experience that we, we arrived in the U.S. a month later because my son was born in August. And when we arrived in the U.S., like 5 a.m., I was taken to the immigration officer and said, okay, but the files, the, the paperwork from the university is not valid anymore because the month has passed. And they have not updated oh. it. So we just like waited with two little children, sickly tired, uh, in the airport like for like three, four hours. Oof. That's the kind of things that we can laugh about <laughs> at the point I'm in right now. I was very happy to have the faculty very understanding of my situation. So during the very first days, the very first weeks, everything I needed, every class I have had to miss in order to find ourselves a place to live or find my kids a school. They were very generous about this. There were a lot of difficulties, a lot of challenges, but I was happy enough to have a lot of support from the part of my family, of course, but also from the part of, of the department. Yeah, that's good. Well, we also wanted to talk, Ellie, about some research that you had been doing in the uh time just prior to beginning your PhD studies on Kant and the sublime. We had uh, some brief conversations with the previous guest, Alexandra Gustafsson, about the sublime in a different context, in the context of the philosophy of love. But I'd be interested to hear, first of all, what for you is the sublime, uh, particularly in the context of Kant? Okay, so as a good Kantian, I never experienced the sublime myself, I think. Kant has <laughs> this very like heroic description of the sublime where, where he encounters volcanoes and uh, a ship going uh, through a wide ocean. Uh, the, the greatest things that you, that you can imagine are part of, the, of, of his uh, description of the sublime. But as I see it, the sublime is not, not as I see it, as Kant sees it, but we kind of started mixing our, <laughs> our perceptions of the word me and Kant. 
the sublime is a, is a moment of breakdown. And it can be a moment of breakdown uh, in terms of our capacity to measure things and capacity to evaluate our reality. This is the kind of sublime that can't cause the mathematical sublime. And it can also be a moment of breakdown to our very existence. And this is what can cause the dynamical sublime, which is related to power. When we encounter something that is of such a great power that we have this mixed moment where in one side I'm very threatened about this great power that I'm encountering in nature, but I'm also feeling safe and superior and able to overcome it. But the, the important thing about the sublime, that's where Kant brings the, its, uh, its practical significance, is what we do with this moment of breakdown. I mean, from this moment where I feel like safe in, in, the, in the encounter of something very powerful, I can draw uh, many interesting conclusions about my own self, about my reality in time, about how I'm affected or not by natural events and so on. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, there's so much to unpack there, and I'm sure we'll get into it over the next few questions. One aspect of your research looks at this, you know, this dynamical sublime that you just explained to us and how that helps us secure this idea of the highest good. What is the highest good and what's the relationship between the highest good and the dynamical sublime? The second part of your question, it took me 60 pages to answer it in my in my <laughs> <laughs> I hope we can make it like in two minutes. Uh, I try my best. But if we try to explain it in, very, in a very simple way, we do all sorts of things. We do everything actually for some kind of reason. At least that's what we aspire to. And every reason like has another reason behind it. The highest good is supposed to be like this very final object of the will, the very thing that we aspire to just for itself, that has value just for itself. Kant recognizes this final object as compound of two objects, actually, based on the two parts of our nature. We have a rational nature, we are rational beings, and for this reason, we aspire for moral perfection, which he calls virtue. And we are also natural beings, sensible beings, and we aspire for happiness. We're aspiring for fulfilling our desires. Of course, a lot of happy things, enjoyable things, are not moral. And for this reason, claims that we must first achieve moral virtue, and then there is some kind of proportionality of happiness that we are entitled to. What I claim in my thesis is that Everything is good with this idea of the highest good. But Kant has these other beliefs of very strong um, religious nature as the existence of God or the immortality of the soul in nature focus, which he claims we must take as true, although we have no knowledge of them, in order to conceive and cultivate and uh, try to achieve the highest good. Uh, his explanation for assuming uh, for postulating the immortality of the soul, is that being virtuous in uh, his very pure sense is an endless task, something we as sensible beings, as natural beings, 
will not be able to achieve at any moment of our reality. And for this reason, if we want to see virtue as something we are entitled to, as something that is not completely outside of our nature, we must just assume our story is mortal. It's okay, both this and this progress. One problem with Kant is that he asks us all the time to be very rational when we claim all kinds of stuff. And here he just like asks us to just take this for granted and you'll be fine to help you do your more work. And that's not what we want as Kantians. That's also something he was criticized about uh, by Schelling, by Schiller, and even contemporary Kantians like uh, Paul Geyer. I tried to save Kant from, his, from himself. That's kind of my project here. I claim that the content we need to, content experience that we need to be able to assume in a very minimal way, the immortality of the soul needs to be brought in some way from our experience. Now, we know that in experience, we don't find anything that resembles a soul, and we also don't find anything that's infinite. So it must come from, in a way of analogy. And art and aesthetics and saying sublime things in nature uh, can be a very great way to find this kind of content. When in my analysis of the dynamical sublime, I see this moment of breakdown in our very existence as something that allows us to see ourselves, our, our personal identity as not attached to our natural body. As time and space are things of the natural world, when I have an experience that is analogous to being disconnected from the natural world, I'm also able to see myself as a being just of rational nature, just of the uh, moral uh, realm. That's the general project. It was not two minutes, I'm sorry, but I think five <laughs> was fine. I think it can't be two minutes. <laughs> so is the um, experience of the sublime, as you claim, is it a necessary means of understanding and comprehending the immortality of the soul? Or is it just one way amongst many that we can come to see the soul as immortal? And if the former, if it is a necessary means of a necessary way in which we can come to see the soul as immortal, does that mean that the understanding of the soul as immortal and by extension, the achievement of the highest good is only accessible to those of us who have an experience of the sublime? And might this, you know, only count for a small handful of us? That's a great question. So great question that I addressed it in my thesis. <laughs> but in many places, kind of gets to this crossroads where, where he must bite the bullet and say, yeah, morality is for the very few. And morality is a very, for the very few in the sense that it's a very difficult thing, I think, to achieve. It's not like kid's game. So you, you must work very hard. You must do things that... Uh, people wouldn't normally do, must be, be very strong in your will, and etc. And my claim about uh, this kind of criticism, this kind of objection, is that our very basic moral work is not necessarily affected by our capacity to assume their moral soul. I mean, we are able to, achieve, to, to get to the categorical imperative much more simple way and just, you know, evaluate correctly our actions and um, do this throughout our lives and so on. The point where the 
the immortal soul as a past that becomes important is in the passage from taking Kant to be only like the ontic model philosopher to a more like a virtuatics person, where we're not talking anymore about the certainty about our the praiseworthiness of our actions, but we're talking about the praiseworthiness of our person. In this path, I need to be able to see uh, the highest good as something that is achievable and something I'm progressing towards it in order to evaluate how how good I am. So I think there's like very different more projects uh, that can be discussed here. What's necessary for being for, for acting in a good way and what's necessary for being a truly virtuous uh, person. Well, thank you so much for walking us through that. And obviously Kant is not a person we can easily summarize. So I really appreciate you you doing that for us. And you know it's connected to the sort of thing that Lewis and I are, are really interested in, which is public philosophy. So I'll sort of move us to, you know, I think an interest you have in public philosophy with, you mentioned this Philosophy 360 project to us. Can you tell us what the Philosophy 360 project is? Yeah. First, I want to say something about your project. Like, I've been watching a few episodes and you're doing an amazing job. Like, it's really exciting what's going on here. So, well, thank you. Just wanted to say this. And uh, about the Philosophy 360 project, yeah, that's something really amazing. I had the privilege of developing when I was in during my BA and an MA at the Hebrew U. It started from the first philosophy undergraduate conference uh, that, was in, that, that was in Israel. Uh, it happened in the Tel High uh, Academic College, which is not like a very prestigious place, but they have amazing people, the most incredible nature around them. And we, I, I presented this in this conference, by the way, in a very similar project to what became later on my MA thesis. And at the end of the day, we were like sitting around the bonfire and was speaking with this friend of mine called Neil. And we said, oh, that's such a great platform for us. Like, it's amazing that I'm in the second year of my undergrad studies and I'm able to present original work to other colleagues, to, to faculty members, and they feel like a very friendly pla- uh, platform, a very friendly stage. I wish we had more of this. Uh, so we came back with this idea to Jerusalem and started to develop this with another friend of, us, of ours who was the student union representative. As we were, were organizing the first conference, we realized it could be very interesting also to put more of an interdisciplinary focus on it, especially coming from a very analytical department, which can be sometimes very narrow in its touch to the two other um, uh, academic fields. So the idea of the conference was just to, you know, have different sessions focusing on philosophy and biology, philosophy and physics, philosophy and politics, and so on. We received quite a lot of abstracts from the very first conference, and this project continued to more, like, four conferences, which I'm very proud of. Another thing that I want to add here is that after the first conference, people came to us and said, oh, that's such a great platform. We should do this not like once a month, but we should do something like this and uh, have this community every few weeks. 
So we just started to do philosophy events around the city in Jerusalem and later on Tel Aviv, uh, where we would get some cultural night venue, uh, bring uh, one of our professors to give a very short lecture, which was followed by a very long Q&A. And this continued very successfully until COVID struck us. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I'd love to see more of those kind of interdisciplinary events. And um, would you have any advice for students who are looking to get moving with organizing these kinds of projects? Sure. I think one of the things that uh, really, um, are really uh, scary about doing this is asking people to take on your projects that you thought about. Uh, asking professors to give uh, a talk they, 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 that they were not planning to, to give and that, that is not going to be a nice line in their CV. Or asking a very nice coffee shop that you like to write uh, in your, uh, there in your free time to host uh, this event without taking any money. I was very much like in the, in the approach of just asking people and very nicely, of course, and if that uh, doesn't, is not convenient for them, they can always say no. Uh, we usually got a lot of yeses, so things were good for us. Well, great. It's always good to get philosophy students to just put themselves more forward. So we really appreciate that. I guess on, on that note, um, Ellie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.